Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Uh, Bill, I had a question for you, and it's about uh, the most recent Bachelor episode okay. where Matt took Rachel on a shopping date. And this is like uh, a very coveted date for people who don't know in the Bachelor universe, because I think you get to like keep the clothes and the shoes. And she like tried on all these dresses. And it's it's uh, it's a very coveted date for the, sure. for the women to, to get. I noticed, though. At the end of the date, he gives her a pair of what are clearly Christian Louboutin heels with the red bottoms, mm-hmm. and they show them, and it's obviously a very distinctive marking, but she specifically, no one actually says the name, and it was like very conspicuously, like she was like, yes, I'm so happy to have these shoes with the red bottoms in a very <laughs> knowing way. Yes. I'm just wondering, what do you think was the deal with like, they're allowed to show them, but they can't say the, the name? Do you have any legally, guess on Legally, that? they could say the name if they wanted to. It's just that, you know, corporate legal departments are very they're yeah. risk-averse. So they're not well, gonna... is it risk-averse, or did they not want to say the name if Louboutin had not paid for any product placement? Yeah, that's also probably it, that whenever you see stuff that isn't, that's, that's you know, they have the, the no-name brand in there, a lot of people would tell you that the reason why they do that is so that they can then charge for the brands that they do include. So, yeah. um, But legally, see, you, is... can, you can include trademarks in, in, like, creative works like that. It's pretty, pretty yeah, straightforward. Yeah, they were just very... They were just very cutesy about it. She was like, you know, these shoes that everybody loves. But yeah, well, it's funny because <laughs> Louboutin is like f- very famously like they right. were involved in a big case over those red uh, bottoms. So it's yeah. uh, it's yeah. interesting that you would bring that one up. Well, I knew you would have a good answer, so thank you for that. Uh, we have a really cool show today. Amber and I had a discussion with one of our senior employment reporters, Amanda Ottaway, who made her her pro se debut to talk about. How would you describe it, Amber? The uh... Yeah, so uh, the Mets have had some real trouble with not one but two um, people who it was later revealed that they'd hired that had sexually harassed um, various women, including reporters. And that sort of spiraled into a broader discussion for us about, hey, if you're hiring somebody, especially somebody high profile, mm-hmm. how as an employer can you avoid that? Like, what do you need to do to yeah. take the steps to try to keep your place free of that kind of um, hire. We miss Bill on that one because uh, uh, we were able to sort of lightly roast the Mets, which I know he uh, he enjoys doing from time to time. But it was a very uh, it was a very instructive uh, talk with Amanda. So uh, looking forward to uh, everybody hearing that one. Before we get to that, let's uh, we told everyone last week that we would keep them updated on the whole GameStop stock market frenzy. That yep. happened last week, and uh, here we are. We're going to give you an update right away. Um, I mean, if you didn't la- listen last week, I would say just go give that a listen because it's too much stuff to to rehash here. But the gist is that a bunch of very online people uh, <laughs> drove yeah. these bizarre, irrational swings in the stock market by teaming up to buy shares in these various dying companies out of either nihilism or something else uh and and it spawned a sort of a panic on on wall street on cnbc and it also perhaps more more interestingly for our purposes spawned a bunch of lawsuits and some talk of new financial regulations in dc so um a week later on we already have plenty to uh to touch base on and circle back to well let's start with updates on the things we love most in this world which is lawsuits what's the latest going on with them 
Yeah, we end. We talked last week about two class actions that have been filed against the trading platform Robinhood um, over its decision to restrict trading on GameStop and some of these other very in-demand stocks at the height of the frenzy, which then caused those prices to plummet on those stocks. Um, the, the, the two class actions that we mentioned last week, that number seems sort of quaint now because as yeah. of Monday, which you know we're on Thursday, uh, several days later, I, haven't, I don't have an up-to-date count, but as of Monday, uh, there were already 30 of these lawsuits that had been filed against Robinhood. Um, mm-hmm. The claims are basically what we discussed last week. They, you know, some securities fraud, some breach of contract, the user contract. Sometimes sprinkled in there are these private financial rules, the FINRA rules, sometimes all three. Um, some of these cases also name some of the other retail brokerages, Ally Financial, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade. You know, they impose their own restrictions, and so they have also been brought into uh, sort of this mess. At least one of the cases also named Melvin Capital Management, which was one of those big hedge funds that took uh, the really big losses when GameStop's price rose. You know, a lot of the discourse online was that the, these these uh, trading halts had been put in place to protect these big institutional investors. So some of these cases are, are attempting to sort of draw them in. We should say uh, these cases are, are, don't have a, a rosy outlook. Experts told Law360 that the, the user agreement that most of the users on these platforms sign pretty clearly uh, allows them to impose the kind of restrictions they did. There's been a lot of conspiracy theories about why they did so, but then there's been some good reporting that they did so mainly to make sure that they had enough collateral and enough, you know, sort of money in in behind what they were doing. So, yeah. um, I, you know, I think I think I would be surprised, experts would be surprised if many of these cases gained traction. The old uh, the old user agreement which has felled many an exciting lawsuit uh in its infancy. But that's, yeah, it's interesting to, to, to basically there's a something of a consensus emerging that it's maybe a long shot. But there was also some interesting writing about the way that it might change, you know, sort of government oversight or enforcement of different securities laws. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I should say also at the at the outset here, uh, our own securities law beat reporter, Dean Seal, has been doing a lot of really good coverage on this. Everyone should go check out his um, all his write-ups at Law360. Um, uh, one really interesting story that he wrote was about the challenges that will be faced by the Securities and Exchange Commission in actually figuring out a way to go after police what happened last week. Um, or if they should. I mean, it's... Yeah, right. It, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, the, I mean, the, the SEC's mandate as a regulator is to protect both investors and the markets themselves. And, you know, those goals typically go hand in hand. Like if there's fraud, you know, it's pretty easy to say that that would affect the market. It would also affect investors. It's a tougher case here because, you know, there isn't really obvious fraud or market manipulation here. It's more of what Dean terms in his story meme trading yeah i got a i got a real love that, that term yeah <laughs> yeah um it's this concerted effort centered on a you know an idea really here this idea that you wanted to sort of you know mess with the way that wall street worked that there was this cultural notion and that yeah. people were just doing it to to be part of that movement and to or they- to kicking back against the orthodoxy of Wall Street or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And these individual traders are banding together. They're pushing f- some stocks to to these, these record highs and whatever. But experts told 
Dean, that the SEC would have a hard time arguing that that kind of thing is illegal. Um, you know, it's not like they were lying about the fundamentals of these companies. It's not like they were saying, like, I have inside info that GameStop is transitioning to a more sustainable business model in 2021, and they didn't yeah, right. do that. Or they had any sort of malicious intent in driving this up. I think that's kind of hard to prove. So, you know, there's lots lots of things the SEC can do in their toolbox if they have something actionable. The real question here is whether or not this kind of phenomenon, which I think everyone would agree with was disruptive and strange and irrational, whether or not it's illegal or something that the SEC can actually do something about, I think is a trickier question. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because um, part of the reason everyone was in such a frenzy about this as it started happening was because it, it was just so weird. This isn't normal market behavior. It's not what you see all the time. So the SEC makes sense to me that they wouldn't immediately have tools in their tool belt to deal with it. Well, and I think one final thing that we could talk about here is maybe a tool that they don't have or they don't know if they have is to deal with this this issue of um, uh, what's called um, payment for order flow, which is sort of a mouthful. But it's it's an issue that has gotten sort of a renewed spotlight in the last week as all of this stuff has has, you know, become such a big story. Um, it's a very, very complex process. We won't get into really all the details here, but it's this complex process whereby these big firms on Wall Street pay the retail brokerages like Robinhood for the right to execute the trades that are made by all of their retail investors. Mm -hmm. So GameStop brought this question. It's not a new idea, um, but the whole GameStop mania of the last week brought the issue to the fore for two different reasons. One, Payment for order flow is basically what enables Robinhood and other platforms to not charge any commission yeah. for what they're doing, which, as I mentioned last week, is basically what enabled this kind of crazy sort of retail environment to, to happen is these apps that allow everyone to get involved. I think everyone has probably heard by now that old saying about tech platforms that if you aren't paying for something that you yourself are are the product in the context of Robinhood and some of these other no commission trading platforms that's how you are the product they're making a lot of money that they would argue subsidizes you know mm -hmm. you to be able to do this with no commissions they're making that on the back end the other reason people were talking about this is because there was lots of speculation um, I, we should say, not, with without much founding, that Robinhood and uh, and the other companies were shutting down this trading to help these big companies. That there was yeah. this conflict of interest because they were making all this money through doing this. You know, as I mentioned earlier, they weren't doing that. There's pretty good reporting that they were doing it because they needed to to shore up their own finances to continue this while there was all this sort of unprecedented uh, activity on their platform. But it, you know, all that attention certainly made people aware of this system that's usually on this under the surface, usually something that they don't think about. And people were mm. like, "Ah, oh, that's kind of weird. I didn't know that the, you were like harvesting all those sales and selling them off for like in this sort of complex system." So we've already seen some Democrats, some activists, even some folks that are on Wall Street and Silicon Valley, some VC people have called for a new look at this practice. It's, it, you know, whether or not that actually leads to anything uh, or something concrete, who knows, but it's certainly something that you're going to hear discussed in the months ahead. So next up, we got a uh, pretty wild decision, to be frank about it, out of the Fifth Circuit last week, where a three-judge panel just absolutely ripped into this district court judge for exhibiting what they termed clear bias when he dismissed uh, a Texas professor's, uh, a college professor's gender bias suits. The appeals court sort of breathed new life into, the, into these cases brought by this professor, 
which isn't that unusual. Appeals courts do that all the time, but they actually went so far as to strip the case out of the hands of the lower judge entirely and remand it for a, to a new judge and had some pretty, pretty pointed uh, uh, rebukes for the, uh, for the trial judge. Very, very fascinating ruling. Well, you know, I like talking about employment cases, but more broadly here at Pro Se, we never pass up the opportunity to look at a judge really throwing out some harsh terminology there. So what happened here? What did they say? Yeah, well, it's it's best to talk about the cases first because then you, we can understand the context in which the judge was saying the stuff that he ended up saying. Cases were brought by a professor, is a woman named Audrey Miller, and she is a she was a professor of psychology at Sam Houston State University in Texas, and she said that she was she applied for tenure there and was later denied uh, a salary increase after she filed an EEOC complaint over that. Uh, she she eventually left that job. She applied for a job at a school called the University of Houston downtown, uh, but was not hired there um, after an inquiry into the into what happened at Sam Houston State. She eventually sued both schools and the university systems that oversee them and, and administer them. Uh, and she alleged gender bias. She said she was denied tenure and denied these salary increases because she's a woman. Um, but that is when she ran into a district judge named Lynn Hughes, who's a man. His name is Lynn. Just wanted, I just wanted to clarify that. He eventually shot down the cases entirely and made a number of comments that the Fifth Circuit uh, called off-key, which is a, a pretty light description when you hear uh, what he said. But yeah, he was basically um, taking a very adversarial stance from basically the outset of the uh, of the case. This... Um this ruling was bopping around on Twitter, and I saw a lot of yeah. people talking about it because it, it certainly, it seems like what this judge said was pretty egregious, but I haven't really dug into it. So walk me through what, what this judge was doing here. We discuss in a lot of different contexts about, you know, the judge is the king of his little, his or her little fiefdom in the court. And, you know, he, he has the authority to carry out the law as he or she sees fit and things like that. One of the most egregious things uh, came when this woman, uh, uh, Miller, like I say, she brought two separate cases and there was a motion to consolidate them and she opposed that. Then the judge, uh, Judge Hughes, told her attorney, quote, I will get credit for closing two cases when I crush you. How will that look on your record? She said that to or the, the, the judge said that to the attorney, basically saying, I'm going to crush the cases and I'll get credit Jeez. for closing two at once. Um, getting more to the meat of it, that was obviously a procedural thing, but clearly had uh, exhibited what he thought was eventually going to happen in the cases. He tossed out the claims against uh, Miller's claims against the systems, not the schools themselves. Before he was even before there was even a motion to do so, he said, uh, "quote Systems don't do anything." Uh, and then he basically exhibited just very clear skepticism of the very idea that Miller had experienced any kind of gender-based discrimination. Uh, speaking about her time when she was pursuing tenure and seeking these raises, he said about Miller, quote, there is nothing that she didn't complain about. Anything anybody did for two and a half years, three years, was all for some ulterior motive. So she's, he's Oof. basically accusing, basically, basically making an accusation that she's got some other motive here, that it's not gender-based discrimination. He also said she was too argumentative when she made requests for discovery. He repeatedly sort of declined bids to take discovery, uh, including depositions of material witnesses, uh, and he eventually just threw the case out. Oh, yes, because discovery in our adversarial judicial system is too adversarial. Right. Uh, yeah. 
my head's going to explode here, but it sounds like the Fifth, Fifth Circuit had a similar reaction to the one we're all having hearing that list of stuff. Yeah, pretty neatly, too. In, in, in unanimous fashion, they, they basically just said that Judge Hughes had uh, evinced a prejudgment. That was their quote from the outset of the case. They seized on the comment about how he said he was going to crush the two cases at once. And then they wrote that it, quote, went downhill from there. That was their that was their description. This is speaking a little bit more just to the to the merits of the bias claim, his bias. Uh, they wrote, quote, here, the district judge's conduct from the outset of Miller's cases might at the least reasonably cause an objective observer to question the judge's impartiality. So, like I say, they sort of breathe new life back into her cases, send it back to a different judge. They acknowledge that this is a very that reassigning to a different judge is an extraordinary thing that should only that should be used rarely. But they felt that they were on pretty solid grounds to do so in this case. This is the kind of stuff that as a woman um, and I think for anybody, men and women, in the interest of fairness, it's hard to hear that a woman is bringing a bias case. Right. And then there's also bias in the Experiencing, courtroom. Yeah, I was trying yeah, to make like sure bias I didn't. inside of bias. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wanted to make it as a rushing we, nesting doll of, of, yeah. of bias allegations. I wanted to make sure I didn't lose track of I that. Mean, yeah. All of us have been in court. All of us have seen judges that, you know, as you mentioned at the at the outset, Alex, judges have a right to run their own court the way they want to. They can be really skeptical. If they think an attorney is arguing poorly, they're going to tell them. Sure, like, yeah. You know, it's nothing. Some of that is 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 perfectly fine. But once you start veering into this territory of really sort of clearly saying, like, I'm going to crush your case, then it, it, you know, it's not the normal thing that you see from a judge. And it sounds from what, at least from what I've heard, that this is not the first time that this guy has done this. Yeah, the, 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 and the panel said so when they, when they were talking about the record before them. They said that they had a sense of deja vu um, in dealing with Hughes specifically and specifically regarding gender discrimination cases. He's had a couple of pretty high-profile reversals on questions like that and has had a history of making what I think we would pretty easily call some sexist remarks. We don't have to run them all down now. Like I say, there's, there's good writing on this that runs down, for lack of a better word, his rap sheet on this. Most recently, though... In 2017, he really laid into this female prosecutor who had lost track of some key evidence. She later disclosed it to the court. She had made a mistake and ended up withholding evidence. But as they were getting that sorted out, he told the prosecutor, who's a woman, it was a lot simpler when you guys wore dark suits, white shirts, and navy ties. We didn't let the girls do it in the old days. That was a quote from a couple of years ago. <sighs> so pretty clearly uh, checkered past on some cases like this that have come before him and the panel in this case, drew a pretty uh, clear line to uh, take it off his hands. Mets found themselves in a firestorm when reports revealed that two high-level employees had harassed women. The team said they'd not seen any red flags that would have kept them from hiring the men, but they are reviewing their hiring process to guard against future problems. And other employers would also be wise to do careful vetting. But how do they do that? Here to talk with us about it is senior employment reporter Amanda Ottaway. Welcome to the show, Amanda. It's nice to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with the, you know, you wrote a really interesting piece for us about how employers can try to avoid hiring these kind of problem employees. Um, but this all started with the Mets. So why don't you give us a little, a little background about what happened with them? 
Sure. Yeah. So the Mets have had uh, a pretty turbulent two weeks. Um, late last month, their uh, their brand new general manager, he was hired in mid-December of 2020. Um, ESPN uh, broke a story that he had sent dozens of text messages unsolicited to a female reporter who was uh, covering the team that he was with at the time. I believe it was the Cubs. Um, including some pornographic images. Um, he admitted to sending explicit images, um, and the Mets fired him uh, hours after ESPN published the story. And then this week, um, The Athletic, another another outlet, published allegations from five different women also who worked in sports media um, who said this other high-level uh, employee Mickey Calloway had harassed them. He was a manager at the Mets starting in 2017. Yep. They fired him in 2019, I think, for performance reasons. He denies the claims. Um, he says it was all consensual. He was working for the Los Angeles Angels, uh, and they just suspended him, but I don't think they've fired him yet. So, yeah, I mean, reporters who cover the MLB say this problem is by no means limited to the Mets. You know, sexual harassment in sports, particularly of women who cover men's sports, is... Mm-hmm a tale as old as time, but the, the Mets are, are taking a lot of heat right now. It's obviously a, 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 a rough situation um, for mo- most specifically for the people who were the subject of this behavior by these guys, the Mets hired. Um, and I don't mean to diminish that at all. But we're having you on because, you know, you wrote a story sort of signaling that it could be a teachable moment for employers who would want to try and be more careful about hiring people who may sort of bring this harassment baggage into the workplace but how do they do that? Uh, you you ran through some steps that people generally take. I mean, is this the kind of thing that just, I mean, obviously people always list references and you do a, turn up a light background check. I mean, is that is that the kind of stuff, is, is this the kind of stuff that reviews like that can uncover? No, not not really. And that's a big yeah. part of the, the problem here. Um, one thing that uh, the Mets president, Sandy Alderson, said uh the 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 day they fired Porter in a press conference, he said he got glowing character reviews. Yeah. But also that during the hiring process, Alderson didn't talk to a single woman. So mm. that is obviously a problem, you know, and that's something they should take a look at. But also you can't put all that work on women, right? And there's no guarantee that a woman executive would necessarily know that someone had engaged in this behavior just because she's a woman. And also you have to imagine, like, part of the reason references probably don't work is that it's self-selecting. I mean, you put... You know, go ahead and contact X, Y, and Z from my past. And presumably, if you have any lurking problems, you don't suggest people that will talk about it. For sure. That's definitely part of it. And also part of it um, that that was interesting to me is that, you know, lawyers kept telling me former employers are not going to give you a bad reference because they're concerned about liability issues. They're concerned about getting Mm -hmm. sued for defamation or libel or discrimination. Um, So, you know, a lot of employers these days farm out their references to, you know, 1-800-REFERENCE-CHECK and you can get the dates, you can get like the dates of employment, the position, maybe the salary, depending on on where you are. But because everybody is so concerned about liability, you know, even Mm -hmm. though some states do have protections for you, if you give an honest reference, you know, people, people stop short of doing that. Yeah. And I mean, background checks pose their own set of similar problems, right? That, I mean, they're going to catch if there was a criminal conviction for something, but not a lot else, I don't think. Right. That was, that was what I kept hearing as well. You know, if, if, if there's been charges, maybe, but otherwise, Mm -hmm. you know, probably not. Well, we've, we've laid out, I think how the 
sort of traditional interview, how stuff like this can slip through the traditional interview screening process. But I think it's probably a good time to talk about the extra steps that people can take, sort of, uh, you know, teachable sort of points of advice that other employers might take from this, apart from the general advice of never do anything that the Mets do. Um, <laughs> the uh, I, I don't mean to be glib about it, but you 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 walk through a lot of sort of, you know, going the extra mile a little bit. What does some of that look like in terms of trying to be a little more diligent in finding stuff like that? Yeah. So really one of the best things you can do to avoid hiring a sexual harasser is by asking the right interview questions. Um, and you know, you do have to be really careful that you're not being discriminatory in your hiring process. You have to make sure, are you asking all of your applicants these questions? Are you asking just men and not women? Like, don't do that. Um, but you can ask both direct and indirect questions. I mean, you can straight up ask somebody, have right. you ever been interviewed in an investigation based on a report by someone that that said you you engaged in inappropriate conduct mm -hmm. um and see how they respond you know of course they can lie um but you you got to also kind of use your gut and evaluate them and then if it comes out later that they did lie in their application process that's a problem for them or they might surprise you and say yes um you know they'll they can either deny it or they'll say yeah here's what happened it was a miscommunication i learned from yep. it you can use a what if I spoke to your former manager framework. Mm -hmm. You know, if I spoke to your manager, what would they say about your reliability? What would they say about your respect for others? Um, if you've ever been involved in a harassment situation. Mm -hmm. um, and is this also the kind of thing that can be sussed out with? I know a lot of interviewing these days is based on questions that are like, if you were in X situation, what would you do? Totally. Yeah. Posing hypotheticals is, is a good way to go about this, too. You know, you can say uh, one, one attorney gave an example of like you're in a in a group text message chain with a bunch of colleagues and somebody says something sexually inappropriate to another colleague. What do you do? And, and you can even give them options. You can give a multiple choice. Like, do you report it to somebody? Do you report it to H.R.? Do you say something to the group in response? Do you let it go? And that how they answer those kind of questions can also help you figure out like, what kind of level of respect they have for their colleagues, um, which can be very helpful as well. So that seems like some good initial steps. But I know one thing that springs to lots of people's minds because so much of our lives are revealed on social media and the Internet is employers just checking that out. I mean, is that advisable? I know there may be their own set of pitfalls there, but presumably you could discover some unsavory comments that way. You could. Um Lawyers are careful about this. Um, yeah, no risk way. Of, risk averse <laughs> bunch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, you know, folks say they were pretty hesitant about saying, yeah, you know, yeah, I recommend that you do, that you check out someone's social media. They do they do advise against it if possible um, to vet job candidates. The reason for that is because the internet is a fire hose of information, right? And you cannot unsee something that might come come into play later. Like if mm -hmm. someone has posted something very sexually offensive on Twitter and you see that, you might also see that they're in a wheelchair in their profile picture, for example. Yeah. Um, you can't unsee that. And so social media is a minefield. But if someone has said something egregious in public that, you know, could give you some important clues about their judgment. So it's sort of a, the advice here, I guess, is a little bit of a... Um check at your own peril that you might find some good stuff, but the risks might be pretty high too. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a minefield. And also, you know, there are some states that where you, you can't discriminate against somebody because of what they do off the job. So that's another mm-hmm. thing to keep in mind. Um, so, yes, check at your own perils is a good way to, to put that, Amber. The One of the reasons, you know, we're, we're talking about how anyone who's hiring for any position should probably be a little more diligent to make sure that you don't that, you know, if you're if you're trying not to hire people who have sexual harassment, either sort of credible allegations or even suggestions of allegations, that's something you should probably strive to do. One of the reasons this blew up for the Mets is because this is like this is an example of where like the hiring of people is very high profile sports, entertainment, stuff like that. What are situation it's especially when it's like high profile hiring that you're doing? What are some things that you might do um, to even go an extra step? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the Mets president was talking when the Porter stuff came out, he was talking about FBI style investigations, I think was how he (laughs) phrased it. You, yeah, you can hire a private investigator. You can, you can look into that, um, for, for, you know, specifically for these kinds of public facing multi-million dollar, multi-year contracts. Um, you know, that kind of thing is obviously expensive, could be cost prohibitive unless you're talking about a position, as you say, in pro sports, in entertainment. Um, but if you're a company that has a lot of people in those kinds of positions, you know, one attorney said you could have a PI on retainer and, and you know, yeah. just just do that. Um, but again, you know, you got to make sure that person's doing their work within the legal boundaries. Yeah, it seems like an extreme step, but given the... Um PR nightmare and the problems with reputational damage that one bad hire can do, I can see that some really big companies in certain industries might want to take that step. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So everything we've talked about, I mean, it gives people an idea of some extra tools that they have out there, some extra things they can do, but none of it seems like no mistakes could be made. I mean, it seems like you always run some level of risk that you're going to make a hire and regret it down the road. Is there anything just in general that employers can do to sort of mitigate the inherent risks here of just making the wrong choice and ending up hiring somebody with a checkered past that brings that to your workplace? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I kept hearing over and over and over. You know, the best thing that you can do is make sure your own workplace is hostile to sexual harassment, you know, and that way, even if somebody ends up as as an employee and you don't you don't know about their past, you got you you can put the behavior in its tracks. Basically, Um, the reason that it's so hard to suss out sexual harassment in someone's past is that the system is broken, right? You know, I I kept hearing this. People, as long as people and women are afraid to report sexual harassment and assault at work, as long as employers are afraid to pass along that information to, 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 you know, a a hiring employer and a reference check, this is going to happen. Um, and the, the woman in the Porter story in particular, you know, she said she didn't she was scared to report it because she was scared of losing her job. Uh, mm-hmm. She was an international correspondent. And, you know, now ESPN says she has moved back to her home country and is working, I think, in finance. You know, she did. She is no longer working at her job. Um, so yeah, victim- it's really devastating outcomes that can come from this kind of behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just on a human level very devastating. Yeah. So, I mean, it it seems like what the grand advice here is employers should be trying harder, you know, at the onset. Right. But if all else fails, they should have their own house in order. So if a problem arises, they can really cut it off quickly. 
Yeah, absolutely. Make sure your workplace is super hostile to that kind of behavior and make sure everybody knows exactly what sexual harassment is, how you define it, who they should report it to if it happens to them, um, and, and how it will be addressed. Just squash it out. Don't give it air. Also, hire a diverse workforce. You know, if if there are all kinds of people at all levels of your of your company, this kind of stuff just doesn't happen as much. That's great advice. And thank you so much for coming on the show to bring it to us, Amanda. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we're back around to talking about music, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, we're talking about Taylor Swift again. Uh, friend of the show, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'd like fre- to think so. <laughs> frequently A grand tradition on, on this show, yes. Frequently discussed on Law 360's The Pro Se Podcast. Yeah, Taylor Swift was, uh, so she released an album in December called Evermore. Yeah. Ever heard of it? Uh, so she was <laughs> sued this week by a, a Utah theme park that's named the same thing, also named Evermore. It's all pretty stupid, uh, but that's sort of the point of this segment, so well, let's get into it. Yeah, let's get into the market confusion between a random theme park and one of the best-selling pop singers in America and her album. Yeah, even I know enough about this one, but lay lay it out for us. So Evermore Park was opened in 2018. Uh, It's it's nearby, it's near Salt Lake City in Utah. Um, And it describes itself as a, quote, immersive experience theme park. Doesn't have any rides or or big attractions like that. The whole thing, the whole sort of gimmick is that it has a bunch of actors spread out throughout the park who play these fantasy characters. You're basically in like a giant World of Warcraft online video game type thing, but IRL. Uh, after great after last week discussing the Lord of the Rings, we're now say that's that's that's, now talking about cosplay uh, theme parks. (laughs) It's like, what if we made a whole theme park out of the Renaissance Fair? Right. right. I was just gonna make a Renaissance Fair reference. Yeah, yeah. I've been to many Renaissance fairs in my day. I think they're fun. So. Taylor Swift, on the other hand, uh, as I mentioned earlier, she released an album in December called Evermore. Same name as the park. You know where this is going. It's a sequel to her folklore earlier in the year. Uh, Both were sort of surprise quarantine albums. It seems like they were well received. I don't know if you guys have sway takes. Yeah, you you want to... Batter on some T Swift takes, go Amber. Uh, nothing will be as good as 1989, which okay. I think is a near perfect album. But what people wanted in quarantine was some like folk rock from Taylor Swift. I yeah. think it was very well received. I um I didn't really listen to these that much. I think I took them once through each time, and I'm not like a I don't really go chapter and verse on a lot of Taylor Swift albums. I like a lot of the hit songs that I think yeah. everybody likes. But what I did like was that you know there's a grand tradition of mostly male singers doing what I consider to be going to the woods. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you get, you, you achieve a certain level of fame. You're like a huge pop star. And then you like, 
disappear into the woods and deconstruct <laughs> your persona and sure. strip it down. You know, Bob Dylan had done this. John sure. Mayer did this. Springsteen Ju- had a moment. Ju- Springsteen. Justin Timberlake's was literally called Man of the Woods. Yes, uh, it was. That's like, right. Full mask off. Not even no no artifice. <laughs> and it was uh-huh. cool to see her doing that. They, they, I didn't love these albums, but it was fun to watch that play out again. In a, well, now in she's a, in a now she's context. lost deep in the woods of litigation. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. Uh, um. So yeah, the, the, this Evermore sued for trademark infringement. They said, you know, we control the rights to the word Evermore. Um, it's pretty much a masterclass in how trademark law doesn't work. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, this is a, a common refrain for me. I've said it on the podcast one more time. But one more time for the people in the back. Trademarks don't give you like a monopoly on a word. It's just Speak not on. how it works. They're there to prevent consumer confusion in the marketplace if if, mm-hmm. if there's no confusion you don't have any rights to enforce that's why there's yeah. there's delta airlines delta faucet delta dental you're you know it's like you can <laughs> and the, i mean the, the, the classic example i know that you've used a lot is uh yeah it doesn't stop people who grow apples just because apple computer has a trademark on that <laughs> exactly <laughs> this um, is why i started a beet farm called beets by a and Dr. Dre <laughs> tried to sue me, and he just got nowhere. So that was right. great. Yeah, he uh, that he really had egg on his face after There's nothing. that. I mean, I mean, what are um, we talking about here? Yes, but so, I mean, yeah. but yeah. So I mean, as as we are alluding to, it's sort of a, a reach to say that anyone is going to think that a Taylor Swift album is somehow affiliated with this fantasy theme park in Utah. The other <laughs> important yeah. sort of wrinkle here is that. Trademark law is pretty hemmed in by the First Amendment. The rule of thumb with anything creative, any work of art, is that unless you using the trademark is completely irrelevant to the work and sort of explicitly confuses the consumers, it's fair game. So, like, mm-hmm. it's it's funny. We actually just talked about this at the beginning of the show in the context of The Bachelor. But you couldn't call your album folklore brought to you by coca-cola like you couldn't (laughs) she couldn't do that but if you're a newspaper you can use trademarks in a story that's why you see all the time there's an advertiser in the newspaper that says buy our stuff for the big game because they can't say super bowl but espn can say super bowl because they are a creative you know news gathering expressive work protected by the first amendment if you're making a movie you don't have to cover up trademarks on labels if you're the bachelor you get to you know you could say louboutin if you wanted to um contrary again to we, we mentioned earlier what you see sometimes which is people being very cautious here yeah and just to wrap this up if you're making an album you can almost certainly name it the same thing as a theme park in utah um it's <laughs> it's it's obviously not quite as simple as that i mean evermore yeah yeah you know, Taylor Swift is selling merchandise with Evermore on it, and that's sort of a closer question here when you start making branded things linked to an expressive product. But I, I would be, I would be very surprised if this case does not settle fairly soon. I'm really excited about Taylor Swift's upcoming albums. I think Cedar Point and Bush Gardens are both going to be great. <laughs> good i think i i agree with that fully i think when we're allowed to again we should do a show trip to evermore the theme park yes i'm just very intrigued in. to see what that's all about but guys uh, i have case, i have yeah. one joke as well can i can i say it do it go for it i believe that she's going to shake off this lawsuit hey oh that's a great way to end today's show i don't know about that but me. we should probably just it is it anyway. it's great <laughs> thanks for being with me bill Oh, see you again next week, guys. And Alex. <laughs> see you guys. We want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Amanda Ottaway, and our contributing reporters, Dean Steele, 
Dave Simpson, and Haley Knopf. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review that helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, head on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week. Thank you.